After months of study, the Defense Department is hearing harsh news from the commission it hired to study sexual assault in the military. The report confirms much of what many assault survivors have been saying about DOD's culture for years. The Pentagon is already taking steps to change some of its policies, and it's working with Congress to change the law. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with the latest. And Scott, let's start with what DOD officials say they plan to do with these cases right now. There's going to be a few things that DOD is going to be doing immediately. Now, this report is pretty huge. There's 82 recommendations within it, but there are a few things that DOD can do right now uh, that it hopes will change some of the culture that has been come to light through this report and also some of the issues that they've uh, seen through this report. And by the way, that report comes from... That report comes from an independent review commission that was uh, commissioned by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on actually his first day of of, uh, being in office. What the military services will be doing is standardizing all non-judicial punishments. Uh, It's a deviation from really centuries-long tradition and and really tradition from not only the United States military, but from a lot of different militaries. The commanders usually had charge of what uh, sort of punishment there the people under them would have that will no longer be the case or at least that punishment will at least have to be uniform in some way but in the uh, first the place sort of, people have to be found guilty well yes and and you know this would be something that this would be non-judicial so uh you know let's say you're late for calisthenics in the morning well you know they can say run an extra lap right this this is something you know that that may be a little trivial for what this is but in that sense Everything will have to be uniform and a commander necessarily wouldn't have to go through any sort of tribunal or anything for, for that. Another thing the services are doing is that they're establishing a separation process for troops who have been convicted, really, of substantiated sexual harassment claims. And the military branches are going to standardize and professionalize career tracks for lawyers and investigators in sexual assault and sexual harassment cases. Finally, they've put Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks on the case uh, for implementing the rest of these 82 recommendations within the next 60 days, or at least coming out with a roadmap within the next 60 days. Obviously, they can't put everything uh, into law and into uh, policy within those those two months. But what Lloyd Austin is doing in the meantime, though, is keeping the cases and the adjudication and the trial of the cases within the command structure. So that's far. right. In the meantime, in the meantime, it will be in there. And that's not because of the Defense Department's. Uh, that's really just because of the way the law works. The Uniform Code of Military Justice says that's the way it is. And they're going to have to work with Congress in order to change that. What they want to do is take sex crimes out of the chain of command. This is something that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said he wants to happen. Uh, There are an overwhelming majority of Congress members that want this to happen. uh, And we have the the support from President Biden. So it's looking very likely. Uh, There's also going to be other crimes that will be taken out of the chain of command that are similar to this, like retaliation, child abuse, domestic abuse, uh, those sorts of things that are related. Uh, Stalking, another one uh, that can really be prosecuted at the same time as sexual assault because they're so closely related. And will this be part of an NDAA, a National Defense Authorization Bill, or will it be a standalone law, do you think? So that's the thing that we don't know for sure yet. Uh, We've seen that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has put out a bill and she's been really pushing 
for that to go ahead and, and go to a vote. Now, that bill takes not only sex crimes out of the chain of command, but some other crimes as well that really don't have anything to do with the military. Uh, murder, um, you know, uh, things like larceny and stealing and those other those sorts of things. So um, that's really kind of the the point where the def- the Defense Department and the military are having some issues with with the um with that bill and why it may have to be folded into the the NDAA. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni. And what are some of the other themes in this report from this investigative body that looked into all of this? I'd say there are two main themes that have really been pushed, uh, and they're they're pretty strong words from the Independent Commission. One is that there is a culture of misogyny within the Defense Department, uh, which is a pretty uh, damning uh, evidence and pretty damning conviction on on the side of the, uh, the the commission. The second is that there's just a mistrust between leadership and the people who are working under that leadership, which is something that the Defense Department certainly does not want within its chain of command. Uh, what's leading to that uh, partly is because these commanders don't have the legal training that they need to do this. They have limited legal training. They're not lawyers. And asking them to do the sort of uh, work like thinking of what it takes, the amount of evidence it takes to create a case, create a conviction, and take it to a court. Um, they may not have the JD or, or whatever they need to figure that out. And what we've seen within the Fort Hood review, which was from last summer, is really a lack of trust between these leaders, the junior leaders and the senior leaders. The senior leaders don't know what is going on in these, these platoons and these units, and therefore people feel like they're on their own. Another thing is that there's outdated gender norms that women can't do some of the things that that men can do. And the IRC, the Independent Review Commission, really pointed this out as something that's Bush League if you want to compete with someone like Amazon or Google, who has much more forward-thinking policies that bring women in in a much more diverse and productive way. Sure. Well, let's hope it helps them compete with the likes of China and Russia, as well as Amazon and Google. And What can we see in the immediate coming months? I mean, you mentioned this uh, possible law to take the adjudication of these offenses and the trials out of the chain of command. What about prevention of them in the first place? What about changing the culture? Was that part of the recommendation so that the incidences of assault, sexual assault, sexual abuse and sexual harassment don't happen in the first place? Exactly. And, and that's another thing that the, the report pointed out is that DOD is not allocating resources or at least enough resources into prevention itself. And it doesn't really even understand what the prevention is. Uh, you know, they put things into these, uh, these programs or put money into programs and, and then just sort of throw money into them thinking that, that it works. They might be things like a, a fundraiser or a cakewalk for uh, sexual assault prevention that just lets people know that you know there's a hotline out there where they can get a sticker to put on their fridge. Well, that doesn't help prevent the issue and it doesn't change the, the culture around this. Uh, it really just gives people a number to call after the issue has happened uh, and they've been victimized. So uh, these are the things that DOD is really going to have to have to look at and change within their own system. And I imagine they must be looking at training, and even as far back as basic training, with people coming in as recruits to the various armed services in making that kind of admonition as part of the basic training. We don't know where you came from or what your culture was back home, but around here, X, Y, Z. 
Definitely. And, you know, it, that's one of the things that DoD has always been sort of trying to critique and change over time. And one of the things they've always said to battle is training fatigue. You know, there's a training for everything, for fire extinguishers, for you know every possible thing you can think of. And, uh, you know, this is something that they have to push that it's very serious and that there's no tolerance for it, while also making sure that people aren't just kind of zoning out and, uh, you know, just saying, all right, I check that box. All right. Anything else we need to know at this point? Uh, well, you know, just keep following the NDAA. We're going to be seeing, I think, a lot more uh, provisions about this uh, other than what's in the bill, uh, probably some some allocations of money as well. So uh, keep your eye out for that and uh, we'll see what happens in the coming months. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his latest story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. 
And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.